One of the things that I love about uh, occasionally preaching here at Grace is that by the time I get up here, the sermon's already been preached, and uh, just have to preach it again, right? Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 48, uh, if you would. That's where we're going to be this morning. So many great songs that we just finished singing. I told Kenny as we were <clears throat> communicating about the uh, service this week that one of the songs that's been greatly on my mind as, as I've been preparing uh, for this, this message is an old Southern gospel uh, hymn from the mid-20th century by Ira Stanfill. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. And it, the whole thing is really, really good, but <clears throat> it's got this line in it that I just, this refrain that I, that I love, and it just has kept popping to, to mind as I've been preparing. It says, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. He wrote this after his uh, wife divorced him in 1948 for what people speculate were, we could say, less than biblical reasons. He had gone into a deep depression, a deep time of difficulty. How in the world could God allow this sort of tragedy to take place <clears throat> in his life as he was processing uh, that and growing through that and walking with the Lord through that? He felt like the Lord gave him that song and those lyrics. And it's really a beautiful snapshot of what we find in Jacob's life and our story today here at the end of his days. It's a picture of forward-looking faith that is rooted in the experience of many past faithfulnesses from the Lord. Uh, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Genesis for some time now, and for a great bit of that time recently, we have been under the heading since Genesis 37 of the generations of Jacob. And even back before that, we've been tracking the life of Jacob for quite a while. But pretty much since Genesis 37, Jacob himself has kind of moved off of the center stage, and Joseph has moved on to the center stage. He's been front and center. Here at the end of the book, he is, just in general, here's my own opinion, I love crying infants in the worship service. I know moms and dads sometimes... The, the people of Israel used to get together periodically and read the book of Deuteronomy to all the people, and everybody was there, and there was crying. So it doesn't bother me, just so you know, at all. I love them. Leave them. We're, we're, leave them in here. We're, gonna, we're great if you want to stay. Um, anyway, Jacob is reemerging into uh, the front and center of, of the story as, as the book of Genesis is coming to a close, and he's got really important lessons to share with uh, Joseph and to share with us. He is a very different man from the one we encountered, uh, emerging from his mother's womb, clutching at his brother's heel, scheming and deceiving Esau and his father Isaac, contending with Laban for years. He's been through a lot. Much of the things that he have been, has been through have been very difficult, and not a little of it was self-inflicted. If we were to watch the game tape of Jacob's life, we would see plenty of fumbles. But here he is at the end, finishing really well by faith. And, and, and to me, that's such an encouraging thing, because if we were to watch the game tape of my life or your life, we would see lots of fumbles, wouldn't we? Isn't it good news that in the grip of grace, one who fumbles a plenty 
can finish really, really well. Here's another neat thing about this passage. Um, Hebrews 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Faith, uh, singles out a, a, a many uh, beautiful examples of faith-based living from the saints of the Old Testament. And when it singles out one for Jacob's life, it's, it's this one from Genesis 48, where, uh, and, and I know we haven't read it yet, but it's, it's the one where Jacob crosses his hands, blessing his grandsons. In Hebrews 11:21, we read these words. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It is kind of curious, though, that this would be the example that Hebrews 11 selects. Certainly there were more eventful moments in Jacob's life. We might think of the ladder of angels, right, in Genesis 28, or the wrestling match with God in Genesis 32. This one seems kind of tame by comparison, so why does Hebrews 11 pick this one? Well, Hebrews 11 portrays faith as that thing which lays hold of God's promises and God's character, even when the outcome of those promises can't yet fully be seen. It's the kind of faith that leans into the assurance of future grace, not because it's certain of all the details that tomorrow holds, but because it's confident in the one who holds tomorrow and the one who holds his hand. I think that's why Hebrews 11 selects this example. Jacob is dying in faith with rock-solid trust in the Lord, even though he himself hasn't really received the things promised, as Hebrews 11.13 says. Or Hebrews 11.1, right, reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here in our passage today, there are things that Jacob cannot see, and there are things that he can He can barely see his grandsons. He can't see the exact timing or manner of God's fulfillment of his covenant promises. But by faith, God has been maturing in him a capacity to see the character of God. So knowing what he knows and seeing what he does see, he's able to trust and bless. And even as Hebrews 11 says to worship, right? Describes this moment as an act of worship. It's a very powerful testimony of grace that not only saves but also transforms. Uh, Last week, uh, Randy preached to us from Genesis chapter 47, and right there at the end of that passage, we saw Jacob putting Joseph under an oath to bury him with his fathers and not in Egypt. By that point in time, Jacob has been uh, with Joseph and his family in Egypt for 17 years. We pick up our part of the story in verse 1 of chapter 48, uh, where we discover that Jacob intends to, to, to adopt uh, Joseph's oldest sons. Verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance." 
As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So in his illness, Jacob calls for Joseph, and he begins the process of legally adopting Joseph's sons as his own. He refers, <coughs> excuse me, right at the outset in verses 3 and 4 to God's transfer of the promise uh, to him that took place at, Lu- took place at Luz or, or Bethel. He's referring to Genesis 35, and he's recounting how God transferred that, that promise to him. And the reason he's doing it, right, as the, as the designated receptor of these covenantal promises, Jacob has been given the authority to delegate to whom those promises will transfer as he himself departs the earth. This is a very significant moment in the life of the people of Israel. In verses uh, 8 through 11, we get the, the formalization, the officialization of this adoption process. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? More on that question in just a second. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. When Jacob asked the question, who are these, in verse 8, uh, most of the commentators that I consulted with basically said, that's a, a solemnizing question, right? That's a ceremonial question, an officializing question. Think of, uh, you've been to weddings, and the officiant says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Well, everybody knows that dad's going to say her mother and I, right? So um, Jacob probably knows, right, by this point, whom Joseph has brought with him, but he's officializing or solemnizing the occasion of their adoption. We're also told in these verses uh, that Jacob's own sight is dim with age, kind of calls our attention back to another moment of blessing transfer with another father who couldn't see very well. And we're left to wonder, at least for the moment, in what manner will will, uh, Jacob transfer these blessings? Will it be akin to Isaac who fought the will of God because he liked what filled his belly? Or will he transfer in faith? After he's adopted the boys as his own, the kind of the main chunk of this passage now revolves around Jacob's pronouncement of blessings uh, on Joseph's sons. We get the uh, preamble to this and the manner in which he crosses his hand, starting in verse 12. Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. 
Joseph knows his dad is old. Joseph knows his dad can't see. He is making this as easy as possible for the old man. He says, I am going to position these boys for maximum convenience. I am ushering my oldest towards your right hand and my youngest towards your left hand so that you can properly put the blessing of the firstborn on the oldest son. And that is not what happens. Joseph is not happy about this. We'll see more on that in a moment. But as he crosses his hands and begins to pronounce blessing on the boys, he does so in a threefold manner by invoking the name of God or invoking the character of God. There's three things he wants to call on about the character of God by whom he intends to invoke blessing on these boys. We pick that up in verse 15. Kenny helped us focus on these in our time of worship. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Here we begin to get Jacob's retrospective on who this God is that has saved him and changed him into the man we see at this particular moment. The first invocation of God in the first part of verse 15 is the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. In other words, here's what Jacob is saying at this point. The God by whom I am invoking this transfer of blessings to these boys is the God of the big story. He's the God of redemptive historical faithfulness. He's the God of covenant faithfulness going back to his forefathers and beyond. This is really good news because Jacob's story by itself isn't big enough. And his story is secured by virtue of the fact that it is connected to the bigger picture redemptive story of God's work in the world. The second invocation in the second half of verse 15 kind of gives us the other side of that, right? This is the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So if the first invocation is the God of the big story, the second is the God of the small story, the God of my story, the God who has been my shepherd through each and every step of my path. It's really good news, right, that the two of those are merged together, isn't it? Right, that he is not only the God of the big story, but also the God who personally, lovingly, individually, and, and attentively shepherds the need of each individual sheep. And Jacob's taking comfort from that. He's looking back and he sees, here's what J Jacob says, I see my life as having been lovingly shepherded by God. Which is a rather th stunning thing to say if you know much about the life of Jacob, right? Given all of the trouble, all of the difficulty that his life has included, how we wonder, how can he say, all my life, lovingly shepherded by a good and gracious God? What's that life include? Remember when Randy was preaching last week, Genesis 47, verse 9? Jacob 
gives a summary. He gives a nutshell of his life to Pharaoh when he has the chance to meet Pharaoh, and he summarizes his life to that point. Here's what he said. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life. How does that square with the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day? Remember, he's born clutching at Esau's heel. It was prophesied of Jacob that he as the second born would nevertheless have preeminence over his brother Esau, the firstborn, and yet he lives the entirety of his life with a father, Isaac, who openly loves him less than his brother. He lives out the fulfillment of the meaning of his name, Cheater. He is hated by Esau and threatened to be murdered by Esau. He has to go on the run. He deals for years with scheming Laban. Because of scheming Laban, he is tricked into a marriage to a woman that he did not intend to marry. There is discord between his wives, Leah and Rachel, and favoritism as well. He experiences the death of his beloved wife in childbirth. He is deceived as to, the, as, as to the aliveness of his son Joseph for over 20 years. He's told that he has been killed when he has been betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers, and for over two decades he doesn't know this. He is now dying outside the land of promise because of a famine that has forced his family to find their way to Egypt. And in his final analysis, he says in all of that, God has been my loving shepherd. One interpreter said, when you stack up just not even all of, but some of those things that Jacob had dealt with, it would be a reasonable diagnosis to conclude that he might have been clinically depressed. And he concludes that God has been my loving shepherd. He says, even if it didn't feel like it then, that's exactly what it was, and I see it now. Maybe you can relate to Jacob's life of hardship. Maybe you've had difficulty in your life, some of which was inflicted by others, maybe some of which inflicted by yourself. Retrospective moments like the one that Jacob is sharing now are wonderful and clarifying. It can be so encouraging to look back and see how God was at work for our good in moments that were mystifying at the time. But maybe some of you aren't in the blissful moment of retrospective insight. Maybe some of you feel more like you're in the thick of it instead. Is that you? You're a child of God, you feel like you're in a place right now and it doesn't feel like God is being loving. Here's what we need to know. Here's what we want to know. How can we have assurance that we are loved by God even if it hurts right now? That's a great question. And there is a great answer right here in our text. Ready for this? Verse 16, here's how Jacob says, I have slam dunk assurance. The third invocation of God. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Do you remember this guy? It's a reference back to Genesis 32 the wrestling match with God. In Genesis 32, initially, uh, he, he, he was identified as a, as a man because, right, this, his opponent was coming to wrestle him in the dark. 
as the details emerge, it becomes clear that in some fashion, Jacob is wrestling God himself, can't see my face in the full light of day and live. Jacob declares, I've seen God, God's face. Hosea 12 reflects back on that moment and says of Jacob's wrestling match that he strove with the angel. Strove with the angel of the Lord. The God by whom Jacob is invoking blessing on his grandsons is the angel who redeemed him from all evil. A redeemer in, the Old, in Old Testament theology is someone who makes good a debt you cannot pay. Jacob says, my debt was unpayable and this God paid it all. You remember how he did that? The angel lost so that Jacob could win. He paid the debt by giving Jacob a clutch, a handhold, a grasp on him when he had nothing left but humble, dependent faith. The Redeemer was rescuing Jacob from his biggest problem, himself. So that Jacob can say, the blow that crushed my hip and hurt my pride the most was a surgical strike by the one who loved me best. He's come to the place of recognizing that if he can trust God for redemption, he can walk through every other trial with him as well. Even if it didn't feel loving at the time, he sees clearly that God was doing the most loving thing he could possibly do in freeing him from the tyranny of the self. Does that kind of redemption hurt? It can. Can it be scary? Yes. Shepherd love is often confusing to the sheep, isn't it? Sheep don't know what's best. Think about mom and the little one. Mom does not take the bottle away from the little one because she's trying to starve him or her, but trying to teach the little one to take solid food. Of course, that's very difficult to explain to a fussy little one. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Jacob says he knows that God has been his faithful shepherd even in his heart because he's experienced the redemption of that God. We can have that assurance too. We have a redeemer. And the reality of our redemption is even better than Jacob's foreshadow. Remember John chapter 10? There Jesus introduces himself to us as the good shepherd. And what does he say? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We have a redeemer who has paid an unpayable debt. 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus the Redeemer lost in the most costly manner imaginable so that you and I could win. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross under the curse and judgment of God. And if he can be trusted for that, he can be trusted for everything else. We have great reason to be assured that even his heart is good. 
Now, Jacob's not done. He wants to cast a prospective or forward-looking vision of faith for his son as well. We pick this up in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The right hand is the hand of blessing. And Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob has just finishing uh, looking back over his life in which God has crossed up his own agenda many times. He sees that crossing up of his agenda through the lens of mercy. And as he pronounces blessing on the boys, he is himself crossing up Joseph's expectation of the proper convention. So much so that Joseph, in his irritation, in his anger, not only protests, but tries to move that hand. Dad, you're doing it wrong. Jacob has reached purposely, intentionally. He says, son, I I know exactly what I'm doing. I know the shepherd very well. He doesn't see as the world sees, and neither do I any longer. It's a very different manner for Jacob of giving the patriarchal blessing than, than once he himself took it, right? He took it by scheming and deceiving. Now he gives it in great faith in future grace. Just as a side note, if I, if, if I could encourage w- just with one sort of additional tidbit, one of the things we have to do for moments like these, we, we have to be in tune with the shepherd's voice. And the place that we find ourselves most aligned and in tune with the shepherd's voice would be in the pages of scripture. He's left us a deposit of that voice, right? Um, so to enhance your hearing of what he has to say, I, I would encourage just, you know, again, on the side, some time meditating on, on Psalm chapter one. And as you do that, Randy preached a sermon. It was like summer 2017. We had a series on the Psalms. Randy preached a sermon on Psalm chapter one, right? Blessed is the man who meditates on his law day and night. To go on our sermon archives, right? Re-listen, if you weren't here for that, to that, to that sermon. Um, consult that. How can I dig in and have the word dig in more deeply to my heart so I can hear and recognize the shepherd's voice. But in any case, um, Joseph's reaction to the crossed hands is time provides Jacob opportunity for one more object lesson in the kind of faith that he's talking about. Joseph, who is no slouch, Joseph himself has been through an awful lot and he has learned much of what Jacob has to teach about God has been a faithful shepherd through many difficulties. Joseph has had a great moment of retrospective clarity in chapter 45. And he's got another one coming in chapter 50, but th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a twist on this lesson a little bit, right? So Joseph is, is in a manner of speaking, he's saying, it's, it's one thing for God to allow trouble into my life. 
It's a little bit different if you mess with my plans for my kids. Jacob says, I'm not wrong about crossing my hands, and God isn't wrong about crossing your will for your boys. In God's economy, his ways are not the world's ways. God chooses the weak to shame the strong, so he sends scrawny little David to defeat Goliath. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He sends Messiah to a manger rather than the halls of lavish opulence. He chooses the first to be last and the last to be first. He ordains that victory will transpire through defeat, preeminently through the foolishness of the cross. Jacob, learning these lessons, frustrates Joseph's agenda for his boys, and as he does so, he exemplifies that the good shepherd is to be trusted even when he undoes our agendas. I see moms and dads in this room. You ever feel that way? I can take the hard stuff. Don't do it to my kids. Don't make their lives hard. I've felt that way before. I feel that way frequently. The trial now concerns Joseph's sons. I got plans for them. Something that's helped me with this particular piece, um, I talk about God bringing beauty from ashes and blessing from hardship. A number of years ago when um, Jeff Dykstra was diagnosed with cancer and it became clear as, as time and treatment went by that he wasn't responding and he didn't have long to live. I remember a group of people um, conversing with Leah and grieving and crying and, and just, you know, thinking about what it must be like for her as a wife to face the prospect of losing her husband, particularly at such a young age. But I remember what was heavy on my heart in addition to that at that point in time was not, I mean, Leah was doubly grieving, right? Not just a wife about to lose her husband, but as a mother watching her kids about to lose their dad. And so I don't remember what I asked something about that. And I don't remember everything she said, but, 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 but one thing that has stood out to me, and, and it occurs to me you know, several times a year since then when different things pop up. She said, with grief and tears, I am trusting that God is writing my children's story too. Now that smells like Genesis 48, doesn't it? That smells like Hebrews chapter 11. And, and just, again, to think about that for, for, for a moment, if, if our children are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve and they have the same virus that we do with hearts that clutch onto kingdoms that are too tiny, if God loves them, he's got to liberate them from that too. And sometimes that comes in the midst of some hard because those, those fingers don't pry loose all that easily, do they? Not for us, not for our children. See, guys, more broadly, here's the point. Many people would like to have God in their lives, but not at the expense of the divine disturbances that turn our lives upside down and disrupt our wonderful plan for our lives, right? Don't disrupt the order of the firstborn, the parent might say. Don't disrupt my plan for peace and quiet. When we find our will crossed by God's, those kind of moments, that, that's one of the most difficult tests for a child of God 
I think. The test is, will we still follow him when following means the loss of control or the loss of perceived autonomy or the loss of the right to dictate what the good life is supposed to look like for me? Will we still trust that he is good when God says, not your will, but mine be done? That is a difficult lesson and a most necessary one because as Jacob has shown us, if we're not rescued from ourselves, we are not free at all. And so from the vantage point of hindsight, Jacob is teaching Joseph to hold his own future plans, even those for his sons, very loosely. And it's not just because Joseph doesn't really have control anyway, but it's especially because the good shepherd has been proven time and again to be trustworthy with a far better agenda than any of us could ask or imagine. We come down to verses 21 and 22. These are Jacob's parting comments in this conversation with Joseph. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Jacob promises that even though he is about to die, the God of covenant faithfulness will be with his people and faithfully bring to pass the completion of his promises. And that's demonstrated particularly in deeding, as it were, this mountain slope to Joseph. When I first started preparing for this passage, I thought, eh, what am I going to say about verse 22? Maybe I'll just stop at verse 20. I don't know. It's weird. <clears throat> It's really significant, isn't it? That's not, that's not a throwaway detail. Just like at the end of chapter 47 last week, the deed of this property in the promised land is an indication that Joseph and ultimately the people of God will not make Egypt their place of permanent residence. God is going to be faithful to his promises. He will make good on his promises, even as Jacob himself is dying, not knowing exactly how or when that will take place. And so at the end of his deathbed address to Joseph, we wind back in Hebrews 11, don't we? Forward-looking faith in future grace that has been grounded in a big story and a personal story that have been drenched in shepherd love and shepherd trustworthiness. Or if we wanted to put it differently, maybe Jacob is saying, Many things about tomorrow I still don't seem to understand, but that's not of ultimate significance because I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. This is a triumphant act of deathbed worship. I think it's so fitting that Hebrews 11 refers to this as an act of worship. Maybe not what we commonly think of when we hear the word worship, but if there is a picture of worship and finishing well, this is it. It is a fitting inclusion in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, and so thankful that by God's kindness, he allows this part of the story, right, to be included in Scripture, because it not only shows Joseph, it also shows us the way. One of the reasons that God forms his sheep in the midst of a church family is to provide us with one another's who can help us to see when our faith is weak, help us to grow when our sight is dim. We have a prayer team that's available at Grace. Kenny mentioned them a moment ago. 
We're going to conclude in song here in just a moment. And as we do, they're going to scatter around the front of the sanctuary. If, you're in, if you feel like you're in the thick of it, they would love to help encourage your faith to strengthen your sight, refine your hold on the good shepherd if you need that today. I bet many of us in here do. And if all of this is brand new to you, the losing to win, the upside down ways, the crossed hands, crossing up my conventions, first shall be last. If that's new stuff to you, they would love to help you meet the good shepherd for the very first time. So seek them out. They are here. They're prepared. They're trained. They're ready to minister and bless you. Let's pray. Father, your word is a precious gift. We pray that the hearing of it would sharpen our hearing and sharpen our sight, help us to recognize, to be more attuned to the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus, we give you praise for the way that you have redeemed us. You paid for us an unpayable debt. Lord, forgive us in the moments when we face lesser trials and our faith falters because we're not gripped in those moments by the reality that you've already done the hard part. Lord, you're blood, as we sang this morning, will never lose its power. So we give you praise, Lord Jesus, for that, and pray that you would be exalted, uh, even in our going from this place. Uh, hope, hopefully, we pray, Lord, with refreshed faith to face the challenges that lie before us this week, Lord, even today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.